Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Going Home to Glory, David Eisenhower. David Eisenhower, how old were you when you realized that your grandfather was not an ordinary grandpa? I think it's my first memory of the world. Uh, I, I, I can actually remember uh, some uh, scenes from the summer of 1951. I was three years old. Uh, this was a summer that uh, my mother, father, my sister Anne, Susan, and myself spent in Paris uh, with uh, Ike and Mamie. Uh, at the time, Granddad was uh, Supreme Commander of the NATO forces, the NATO alliance that just formed. I can remember sitting in an airplane and watching him board in a military uniform. And uh, even then, I had a sense of, um, I guess, uh, uh, two worlds. One is a quiet world where I'm sort of on my own. Uh, and the second is a, a world around Dwight Eisenhower, which is full of uh, uh, aides and uh, uh, people arriving with messages and uh, uh, everybody dressed up uh, and so forth. So uh, I was aware very early. Uh, I, I can't, uh, literally cannot remember a time where uh, I did not think that Dwight Eisenhower was somebody pretty special. Now, you were born when? I was born in 1948. So you would have been uh, four when he I was uh, Well, I was three, um, and I remember a number of things from that uh, summer. I can remember uh, we lived in a uh, hotel for a little while called the Petit Trinon, which was right on the border of uh, Versailles. And there was a gardener, and the children were taken out for pony rides. I can remember the pony rides vaguely. I remember the flight home uh, with uh, my grandparents and Mamie, who hated to fly, being attended by all these nurses and things like this. I can remember when he was elected uh, in 1952, and then I can remember the first time I saw the White House, which was uh, June of 1953. I remember that very well. I can remember being uh, shown around the third floor of the White House and saying, this is where you can set up your airplanes. This is where you can <laughs> What's it fun. like being a kid in the White House? Well, it was a, it was a Disneyland, if you, can, if you can imagine this, for, for a young child. And uh, in the era, the 1950s were a stable era in this country, and so uh, people were in a good mood, and they didn't mind children driving tricycles uh, through the ground floor. And uh, so if you can imagine uh, this 105-room mansion, you have sort of a run on it because nobody knows how to say no uh, to you. Uh, all of the uh, butlers uh, on duty, uh, uh, every meal was uh, fabulous, a movie theater, a swimming pool, a great big south lawn, uh, where you can um, have your friends over and become the most popular person in school. It was really, uh, uh, it was uh, a lot of fun uh, when, I was a, when I was a child. I think we looked at it differently when we went back in 1969 and 1970, different era. And the house remained an inspiring place, fun place to be. But uh, the whole uh, ambiance of the White House was uh, different. Were there times when you toddled in on High-level meetings and everyone oh, yes. just put in up fact, with... uh, in this book that we've uh, just published, uh, "Going Home to Glory," I allude to uh, 
a day when I was uh, uh, anxious to make a copy of the first short story I ever written. I, I, I had an ambition as a, as a child to be a short story writer. And I finally produced one. It was about my cousin Janet, who had come east from Chicago in the summer of 1957. Uh, and I wrote about a 10-page, I always went for 10 pages, handwritten. And um, according to the uh, records kept by Ansi Whitman, who was the President's Secretary, July 15th, David, me, age 10, I wander into her office with this story and I asked her to type it up. Uh, this is the President's Secretary. Uh, she produced a, uh, a copy of it, and uh, we ran off about 10 or so, and I put this thing on sale uh, in the hallway right outside the Oval Office in the, in the President's Secretary's office, and it was a good uh, day to have your first short story on sale there because Marines were landing at Lebanon that morning. So the Cabinet is meeting and recessing, the National Security Council is meeting and recessing, and I suppose, you know, these phalanxes of aides and cabinet officials and so forth uh, wandering around, I could not miss uh, on that one. <laughs> Sold out in about 10 minutes. You still have a copy of it? Uh, you know, there are three copies of it that we're aware of. Uh, we have one. Uh, a White House maid showed us one, and I believe there's one on file in the Nixon Library because I sold one to Vice President Nixon that morning. And I got a letter about two days later from him saying uh, how much they had enjoyed uh, reading it and uh, the Nixon girls, Mrs. Nixon, and he all agree that I was one of their very favorite authors. So uh, I think we've, uh, we've got the letter in, we've got the... Now, just to get the genealogy so everyone understands, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, was your grandfather. Yes. Your father, John Eisenhower. Yes. And your sister is Susan, Susan Eisenhower. That's right. And your father and sister have been on this program yes. before. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, we uh, have produced quite a few books uh, from the Eisenhower family. My father... Uh, is a very uh, widely respected historian on a number of interesting topics, the Mexican-American War, World War I. Uh, he, his uh, first book, uh, on uh, his first solo effort was The Bitterwoods, which is the definitive account of the Ardennes counteroffensive. Susan has written a biography of uh, our grandmother, Mamie. Uh, she has written a uh, memoir uh, of sorts, uh, uh, Breaking Free. She's written uh, several books on NATO policy and things like that. And uh, your co-author, your wife, Julie Nixon Eisenhower? Yes. Uh, well, now, <clears throat> she is the daughter of uh, Richard and Pat Nixon, and she is an accomplished writer. Uh, she wrote, uh, she was actually the first, as between us, uh, to publish a book. She published a book called Special People in 1976, and it was, uh, it was a long time ago. But it was that project that uh, introduces to the world of uh, literary agents and publishers and uh, started me on my uh, long uh, path by way of University of Pennsylvania uh, towards uh, publishing. What do you do at University of Pennsylvania? I direct the Institute for Public Service at the Annenberg School at University of Pennsylvania. That means that I run an academic uh, concentration in the School for Communication. And so I teach and administer a, a program that, that has uh, uh, annually, I'd say, about uh, 15 or so majors. Uh, this is a public service concentration, which means our majors are getting ready for law school or service in Washington. Teach for America, a lot of them going to uh, Teach for America. They become, um, we have some people who go into advertising and, and into investment banking, but I would say principally law school. How long have you been at Penn? 
I've been at Penn for a long time. I have uh, my first handshake was uh, the day that uh, President Jarl Selsky of Poland imposed martial law on Poland. That's the that's winter of 1981, I believe. Uh, there was a hiatus of about seven years uh, after I published Eisenhower at War, major book on uh, the Eisenhower, the Supreme Command of World War II. I took several years out to prepare manuscripts that I will publish now over the next couple of years, uh, including the one that we've just published. And we traveled the country speaking for about uh, three years uh, after publication of that book, and then I accepted another appointment at Penn starting in 1996, and I've been there ever since. Now, before we get into talking about the subject matter of this book, I have to ask you about your wife. How did you two meet? We met a couple times during the Eisenhower years. She was the daughter of the vice president. We were grandchildren of the president, and we were about the same age. And so somebody had the idea of getting us together. We met on the inaugural stand, 1957. In fact, we have a picture in this book of us being introduced. I think that's where we met. Several weeks later, the Nixon girls came over to play with my sisters. And I can remember that pretty well. I was the only guy there, and so I was special, number one, but I was not really that involved, number two. We met at a, again at an opener, uh, Baltimore, Washington, April of 1959. Richard Nixon threw out the first ball, and I was there to represent my grandfather, who was out of town, because Fidel Castro was in town and the president did not want to meet uh, the Cuban president, so he absented himself, went to Augusta, and I was sent to the game. Julie and I were there together. We can establish that in pictures. Then we met for uh, in earnest uh, as we both entered college. She entered Smith. I entered Amherst. We were about seven miles apart, and my grandmother was aware of the fact that Julie was going to Smith. Uh, she had met her the summer before we went off to college together, and my grandmother um, was bound to determine that I would call on Julie. Uh, she assured me that I would like her, and I sure did. And you got married when? We got married in the uh, December of 1968, so this was about a two-year courtship, and it began immediately. Uh, so you would have gotten married right after President Nixon was elected? We were married right office. in the interval between the election. November of 68 and um, his inauguration January of 69. That was a long-standing date. We set it in early 1968. Uh, we were going into a national campaign. There was always the chance that Richard Nixon would win. There was a chance that he would lose. And we figured in either case we would do this in December. If, uh, uh, if he won, then this would be a great celebration. If he lost, then this would uh, take the sting out of uh, defeat, we would do it either way. Uh, I think some people suggested that we wait after he won in November, uh, but uh, uh, to get this done in the White House. But uh, they were we, tempted to have a White House wedding. No, I wasn't. I really wasn't. I I, I had been in the White House uh, 53 to 61. I had views on the White House. Uh, my we had a distant relationship with the White House throughout the 1960s. This was something that was a fairly routine conversation uh, in our house. And I had something about uh, doing a wedding, which is a rather personal thing in such a public way. I just didn't want to do it, and nor did Julie. Now, your book, uh, first of all, the title is Going Home to Glory. What, right. what do you mean by that? Well, Going Home to Glory is, uh, th this is a series of uh, 
uh, home going homes. Uh, this is a book about uh, a post-presidency, about Dwight Eisenhower beginning the day he leaves office. This is a neglected topic, I think, by historians. Uh, historians naturally uh, focus on presidents and the decisions they make and the preparation for the presidency. They don't look at the years out of office. And the years out of office uh, are years in which uh, presidents are easier to know. Uh, they're not surrounded by staff. They're not uh, surrounded by aides. Uh, their time is not uh, regulated down to the second, so you can know a president uh, in this period. Uh, also, uh, presidents are term limited under the 22nd Amendment. Dwight Eisenhower was the first to be formally term limited by the 22nd Amendment. What is it like uh, for a person leaving office by operation of law and not by, I would say, natural means, um, uh, either death or losing an election. This is uh, something that we have built into our presidency, and it is something that presidents must now deal with. So we have 22nd Amendment presidencies uh, out there. George W. Bush is one, Clinton is one, Eisenhower. How does that, how does that work? Uh, there are great books on the former president, several that I can name. Douglas Brinkley's The Unfinished Presidency, about Carter. Uh, Candace Millard's River of Doubt, about Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, in 1912, I, I thought that uh, for a character sketch of Dwight Eisenhower, what better way than to describe growing up as he grows old uh, in Gettysburg. We were neighbors and uh, I knew him. We had a very rich correspondence which we've uh, drawn on here. Now what going home is about is the book opens not with his inauguration, not with a great decision, not with D-Day. It opens with the Eisenhowers leaving Washington on the wintry, snow-swept January 20th, 1961, as uh, Washington is ringing in uh, the presidency of John Kennedy. And that is a homecoming. He goes home to Gettysburg. Uh, he goes home to other places uh, throughout uh, his post-presidency because out of office, you have an opportunity to travel, to rekindle old friendships that uh, uh, mean something to you later in life, uh, friendships that uh, were necessarily sort of put on hold uh, when he was exercising this national responsibility. And then finally, I think there's a, a connotation of uh, uh, coming to terms with uh, the fact that he was mortal uh, and uh, that uh, you know, I, I saw him in this period, he's looking back over his life, what regrets did he have, what satisfactions did he have, uh, what did he expect in life, what was his philosophy, and uh, so there is that as well. When he left office, he could have lived anywhere in the world. Why right. did he choose Gettysburg? Well, he chose Gettysburg because they, they loved uh, Gettysburg. Gettysburg was a project. Uh, the Eisenhowers lived in Pennsylvania for several centuries, or a century and a half, let's say. Uh, in the uh, Likens Valley, central Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> they left Pennsylvania for reasons I can't quite uh, figure. I suppose uh, I intend to do a full-length biography of Dwight Eisenhower before I'm done, which would include this part as well as the war book and the materials that we have in between and the materials that we developed uh, prior to that. The Eisenhowers left central Pennsylvania for probably to keep their community intact. Uh, they are Mennonite uh, types, and I think that they 
uh, were restless, uh, uncertain about the incursions of Harrisburg, which is growing, Philadelphia, which is growing westward. And so they decided to find uh, uh, empty land uh, somewhere, so they went to central Kansas. That is something that did not work out very well. Uh, in central Kansas, uh, my namesake, my great-grandfather, uh, went bankrupt, I think, at least twice. Uh, once in 1893 and then, or 1891 or so, and then a second time uh, shortly after, uh, perhaps during the crash in 1929. When David Eisenhower lost his money, what money he had, in a uh, swindling uh, operation, he swindled out of a store, uh, the Eisenhower boys were cast out. Uh, they were no longer on a farm. They were no longer uh, uh, looking forward to working a homestead. Uh, they had to make their way in the world the way most Americans do today. So we have an educator in this group. We have several businessmen. We have an attorney. We have a soldier. Uh, but I think in the back of Dwight Eisenhower's mind was uh, we've lost something. Uh, we've lost our connection with the land. Uh, we... Uh, made a wrong turn somewhere and I want to make it right and when he had resources after the war he wrote a very successful memoir of World War II called Crusade in Europe which actually gave him some money. Uh, with that money he decided to look for a homestead somewhere close to the Lycans Valley uh, and somewhere close to Washington and some place that uh, would inspire him and one of the things that comes through in this book is, I think, uh, my sense of what made Gettysburg, Pennsylvania such a special place. It's not just a pretty southern Pennsylvania town, and it's not just a college town. It's a town where Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address. It's the scene of the greatest battle ever fought in North America. And these things combine to make Gettysburg feel special. So it's the combination of a special place, uh, 200 to say 600 acres, the Greater Eisenhower Farm uh, encompassed about 600 acres, land, a infrastructure, they had an old uh, farmhouse and they had the, uh, the barn set to go and uh, by Jove he was going to take this land and build the, the farm that I think that the Eisenhower boys always dreamed of. And that's why he goes there, because he wanted to work at this in his post-presidency. So it was an actual working farm? Oh yes it was. In fact I worked on it. What'd you do? For, I, I was a uh, Kind of a handyman. I was given a uh, plot of vegetables to uh, take care of one summer. I was about 10. Uh, this is a little truck garden out behind the uh, Moni residence, uh, which is an attachment uh, to, the, to the main residence. Uh, I became a painter by 59 and 60. The white fences that uh, uh, mark off all the pastures uh, at the Gettysburg Farm I, <clears throat> and the parking areas, that was one of my responsibilities. I maintained this uh, uh, vegetable garden. I just did odds and ends, took care of the horses. Were you paid? I was. I was paid 25 cents an hour, <laughs> which was big money back in 1958. Uh, and uh, I enjoyed doing that. And uh, as I tell in the book, uh, at one point I finally lost interest uh, slightly. I got a little sloppy. Uh, by 1963, I was a teenager. And I fell in with a couple of the farmhands. I relate an incident where one day we were playing cards over lunch hour, and lunch hour got a little long. We thought we were alone at the farm. I had no idea that uh, 
Uh, granted, it returned from downtown. He walked, he surprised us. Uh, he walked in on us uh, playing cards, and uh, I got fired uh, right, right on the spot and then rehired two hours later on the golf course, <laughs> uh, which meant I got my second chance. He, uh, granted, had a saying, and that was uh, he allowed his associates one mistake a year. And I went 20 minutes over lunch hour. That was my mistake, and uh, I learned from it. So I uh, worked. You know, played out the string in 1963. Then 64, uh, by the time I turned 16 and I had wheels, I could get around. I think that uh, I never worked on the farm again. Uh, I lived on the farm with him. And uh, every year I had a renewable uh, offer to return to the farm as a hand and to uh, actually become a tutor. He wanted to learn some subjects. And so he offered me the chance to tutor him in Spanish and other things I was learning at Exeter. Uh, so I uh, spent uh, uh, even more time uh, at the farm in the following years, but not as a farmhand. And where were you living at the time? We lived uh, in 1959, in the moving into the final year of the Eisenhower presidency. My father decided to relocate his family uh, to our permanent home, which was right on the edge of the Gettysburg, the Eisenhower farm. The Eisenhower farm is about 189 acres. There was a little plot. On the side of it, I would say about five acres, uh, which had been, once been a schoolhouse. It was called the Pitzer Schoolhouse. And that was remodeled uh, into a home. We moved into it in the summer of 1959. And we were there waiting for them on January 20th, 1961, as the Eisenhowers drive north and uh, uh, come to dinner in our home uh, right on the corner of the farm. And then um, they spend their first night uh, outside of the White House uh, uh, back uh, at their residence. Now, did the, the president or the general, which did he prefer being called? Uh, he preferred general, and he took the title general uh, shortly after he left office. There was a, in fact, there was a bill in Congress uh, late in late 1960. The outgoing Congress was considering uh, a bill which had been put there by the Eisenhower White House uh, calling for his restoration to rank, five-star general. And the, uh, uh, I, that slipped through the cracks somehow. Uh, early after uh, John Kennedy took office, uh, the Eisenhower office in Gettysburg, uh, Colonel Schultz asked uh, the White House to move this bill along. This request puzzled President Kennedy. What's wrong with being Mr. President? Uh, but uh, Eisenhower meant it, and uh, Kennedy very graciously expedited the bill, and it passed in March 1961. He's restored to rank. Why did he prefer the title general? I think there were probably three considerations. One was he was a former president. Presidents, uh, all of them, and he thought the way presidents think, uh, think in terms of legacy. And by taking the title general, what I think Dwight Eisenhower was saying symbolically is that the great connection in his life, the great obligation that he had taken on and probably the explanation for his presidency all stems from his leadership in war. And the events of 1942 through 1945 when um, Eisenhower had been in command of the North African uh, campaign, the uh, Sicily landings and uh, uh, the invasion of North Northwest France. In that period, 
uh, a bond is form formed between the leadership and the soldiers of World War II. The leadership, as best they can, are going to win the peace after we have won the war. So it served that symbolic function. Uh, it also served a uh, practical function. As a general, he was entitled to military aides. And so his team, uh, which uh, Sergeant Money, uh, John Money, his valet, uh, was in the Army. Uh, Colonel Robert Schultz, his aide de camp, was also in the Army. And I think as a general, there was no administrative problem in keeping these people on. Third, and talking about this, uh, this occurred to me, a general is somebody who, a five-star general is always on duty. A former president is never on duty as a president. Uh, there is no role for a former president. Dwight Eisenhower is fashioning one in the 1960s. He's, as I say, the 22nd Amendment requires him to step down. So he goes out and he fashions a role. Former president, twice elected under the 22nd Amendment. We've had a number of people who've served in that role. Ronald Reagan uh, did. Uh, uh, Richard Nixon technically elected twice. Uh, William Clinton, George W. Bush currently, and then other presidents uh, who've had very, George Herbert Walker's had quite a post-presidency, uh, Carter and others. But uh, as a general, he has a role. He has uh, duties to perform. And as a general, he is consulted by Presidents Kennedy and Presidents Johnson in the 1960s on matters of national security and American defenses abroad and the struggles that we were waging, the, the Cold War struggles in Europe, the war in Vietnam. And he had, uh, he took on, in fact, in, in one uh, communication, Lyndon Johnson called uh, Dwight Eisenhower the best chief of staff I've got. In other words, uh, Eisenhower was uh, performing for Johnson a role uh, not nearly as regularly, but um, significantly, somewhat like the one that he was playing for President Truman in 1950 and 51 when he was a general. Was that something that was reported and generally known, or was it kind of kept on the quiet side? That, that I think it was kept fairly quiet. Uh, I was surprised uh, when I... Uh, because he had a Republican former Republican president consulting to Democratic presidents. Yes, well, uh, he had also served Democrats, of course. He, uh, uh, by appointing him command of, in command of Overlord, Franklin Roosevelt vested Dwight Eisenhower with probably uh, the most uh, confidential, uh, the most significant appointment of uh, any military appointment Franklin Roosevelt could make in World War II. He did not place the invasion of Northwest Europe in the hands of somebody who was not going to serve him loyally and effectively. Eisenhower had also served Truman. And he was available uh, for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. I would say initially he did not assume a, well, he did not assume a formal role in those presidencies, uh, anything like the one that he had served in before 52, but he was uh, uh, in, in touch and uh, his judgment was valued. There was a lot of unfinished business after the Eisenhower years. There were, there were crisis points in Berlin, Laos, uh, Vietnam, Cuba, and eventually a war develops uh, in Vietnam, and that is uh, uh, unfinished business uh, from the Eisenhower years. The Vietnam situation was settled uh, in 1954, but coming unglued by 1961, and so the Vietnam War resumes, and he takes on this role. That was not reported widely. One of the surprises uh, that I had in 
going home to glory, much of it is my recollections, literally dictated in a very brief uh, amount of time in uh, around the clock uh, dictating total immersion and so forth. My recollections of that period uh, are the heart uh, of this book. But uh, when we went to make it a book uh, and to fill in the side of Dwight Eisenhower that uh, uh, he was, uh, he was a former president, he was a general, he was somebody who was uh, uh, a Republican leader, he was on the uh, circuit for Republicans, he was doing all of these things and that's what he was. When we went in to fill in that role, I was surprised uh, by the regularity of uh, the consultations, particularly in the Vietnam period. Starting in the summer of 65, General Goodpasture of the Army Joint Staff uh, and Eisenhower's former uh, NSC secretary, it had a different title then, but uh, he'd served as NSC secretary in effect for Eisenhower, is a regular visitor in Gettysburg, deputized by the president to brief Eisenhower regularly and to solicit his views on the unfolding war in Vietnam. Well, you do say in the book here, uh, when uh, right after the assassination of John Kennedy, uh, upon his return from Dallas, President Lyndon Baines Johnson placed a call to Eisenhower and asked him to fly to Washington for consultation. Yes. So right away in his first days in office. And you also say that Johnson phoned Eisenhower often. And Lyndon Johnson became a frequent visitor when Eisenhower checked into Walter Reed for yes. physicals and tests. And Lyndon Johnson said, when I need comfort, this is where I come and this is the man I come to see. They were personal friends. You know, this, is, um, this goes beyond, in fact, it's a uh, in Eisenhower's life, I think it's a unique relationship with presidents. He served Franklin Roosevelt but did not know Franklin Roosevelt personally. He had been drawn into Roosevelt's service in the winter of 1942 while serving in war plans in Washington. He was an assistant to George Marshall. As an assistant to Marshall, he was in fairly frequent contact with the president, which is how Franklin Roosevelt developed such a high regard uh, for Eisenhower. Uh, but that was a strictly professional relationship. I think there was a friendship with Harry Truman. Uh, the Eisenhower Diaries uh, make that pretty clear that in 49, 50, and 51, uh, Ike liked Harry Truman uh, and uh, sympathized uh, with Truman. Uh, I think he was thrilled by uh, Truman's uh, decisiveness and, uh, uh, and so on, but uh, he identified with Truman as a fellow Midwesterner and was very fond of him. Now, that was not what I would call a friendship uh, as such. I don't think that uh, they socialized at all. Uh, of course, his relations with uh, John Kennedy are going to be very correct. Uh, John Kennedy campaigned in 1960 against the errors and the shortcomings of the Eisenhower uh, presidency, and these things are felt. And so there was a, a distance between them, but they warmed uh, as the Kennedy administration went on. But Kennedy drew Eisenhower in uh, to consult on things like uh, arms control with the Russians. Uh, in the summer of 63, Kennedy submitted a test ban treaty, needed Eisenhower's support to get Republican uh, support in the Congress uh, behind that treaty, civil rights summer of 63, uh, NATO diplomacy in late 62, the Cuban Missile Crisis 62, they had a uh, working professional relationship. Now when Johnson comes to office, this is a completely different uh, relationship. Eisenhower had known Johnson as majority leader of the Senate. At one time it had been President Eisenhower and Senator Johnson. In 65 it's President Johnson 
and General Eisenhower. So they had actually changed places. Uh, Eisenhower had known Johnson as sort of a well-meaning opposition uh, figure, but uh, a subordinate. Uh, now Johnson knew Eisenhower in the same capacity. There was a parity there, number one. Number two, they had remarkably similar backgrounds. Uh, if you go to the Johnson Ranch in the hill country of Texas and look at a map and ask yourself, where am I? And then examine the building. Uh, I am overwhelmed by the similarities between the so-called Johnson Ranch House and the Eisner Farm Residence in Gettysburg. It's as though they shared architects, the same building, built at the same time. They both wanted to be uh, ranchers, farmers. If you look at Johnson City, Texas, it's surrounded by German settlers like, like Gettysburg, it's a huge German enclave uh, in, in central uh, Texas. I think Johnson probably is English ancestry, but he's surrounded by all these uh, Germans. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was born in Texas. Uh, they had a similar kind of sense of humor. Uh, they had many uh, shared associates, and they liked each other. And so that was a friendship. And Johnson, um, uh, things got very difficult for President Johnson from 65 on, and Dwight Eisenhower lent, uh, I think, assurance. Uh, Eisenhower was a figure that Johnson respected a great deal in the ability to share concerns uh, and to hear the former president, the former supreme commander, understand things, perhaps not always agree with what Johnson is doing, but to understand things uh, in the way Johnson wanted to be understood uh, must have been a source of assurance and comfort for President Johnson. So he did not have that kind of relationship with John Kennedy? No, he couldn't. Um, now, whether it would have developed uh, had Dallas not intervened, uh, I don't think so. I think uh, John Kennedy is, there, there is such a contrast uh, b between the two. Um, Kennedy is the youngest elected president ever. Eisenhower is the oldest uh, serving when he retired. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, exceeded that uh, by a good margin, but uh, I think there was a regard there. Uh, there was a, a interesting, brief but interesting correspondence uh, over the years. They first met in 1945. Uh, Kennedy was a reporter and interviewed General Eisenhower in the uh, IG Farben complex in Frankfurt, as I understand it. Kennedy was on some sort of an assignment. He went to Moscow, he went to Berlin uh, in the immediate uh, aftermath of VE Day. Kennedy was elected to the Senate and Eisenhower had to notice that because uh, Kennedy defeated Henry Cabot Lodge who was Eisenhower's campaign chairman. Uh, defeated Lodge uh, and had health problems. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower was very solicitous uh, for on Kennedy's behalf uh, when he had a, a, a back operation or he had a back serious back problem and uh, serious health problems in the mid-1950s. Politics divides. Uh, friendships really don't survive uh, national campaigns. Nixon and Kennedy had actually been friends, good friends. In fact, their offices were right next to each other in the uh, old, uh, one of the Senate office buildings, and uh, they were quite friendly until the 60 campaign. 60 campaign, uh, Kennedy wages a campaign to restore uh, the Democratic Party to power. Uh, they are critical of the Republicans, view the Republicans as an anomaly. What they, what I noticed they are, they are able to do is they were able to compartmentalize. Eisenhower and Kennedy met 
in fact, one of the things I relate in going home to glory, my grandfather took my sister and I on a long trip to Europe in the summer of 1962. When he got back, he was called to the White House to brief Kennedy on this trip. Now, the White House made a, a recording of their conversation, which the Kennedy Library shared with me. He's briefing Kennedy uh, on the very trip that uh, uh, I had uh, uh, been on, and they they were very cordial. All right, so this is uh, statesman Dwight Eisenhower briefing President Kennedy on his conversations with uh, Adenauer, De Gaulle, uh, his views on the current state of the Berlin crisis, uh, prospects in Europe, and so forth. Friends. Uh, well, cordial. Five days later, uh, John Kennedy is giving a speech in Harrisburg, I think, where he's uh, criticizing Eisenhower foreign policy, which Eisenhower had sort of understood he would not do. Eisenhower retaliates about three weeks later with a, uh, uh, with a speech uh, denouncing Kennedy foreign policy in Boston. Uh, through inter intermediaries, they sort of agree not to criticize each other on foreign policy anymore. Uh, they remain opponents, domestic policy opponents. All the while, Kennedy is um, extending all of these wonderful courtesies uh, to Dwight Eisenhower, sending him golf balls, uh, presidential golf balls, and uh, pleasant notes, uh, and uh, vice versa. So they compartmentalized. Uh, th there was an area where Eisenhower could uh, cooperate with Kennedy where he could deliver Republican support uh, for key Kennedy programs such as civil rights, test ban. And then there was a side where they were uh, opponents. Well, the 1964 election came along and Dwight Eisenhower, the immediate past president, uh, was his apparent good friend Lyndon Johnson was running for right. a full term. What role did Dwight Eisenhower have in the Republican Party for that year? Well, uh, <clears throat> what happens in the narrative of going home to glory is that Johnson disappears for a while. After they, after they meet uh, during the Kennedy funeral, uh, I know firsthand that they had uh, fairly steady contact uh, throughout 1964 and they were friends. In fact, I was aboard a helicopter uh, with Grant. Helicopters, yeah, I believe it was a helicopter, uh, provided uh, by Lennon Johnson on the day of the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, the second Gulf of Tonkin incident, because there was a teletype, and I can remember my grandfather uh, look, look, looking it over, and uh, he was in steady touch with Johnson on the uh, uh, on these uh, seminal events uh, in the Vietnam uh, conflict. But I don't know if they were in touch with each other. They were very discreet uh, in '64. What's happening in 64 is that Johnson is going to seek election in his own right. And the Republican Party wakes up in early 1964 to realize that uh, the party has been um, transformed without anybody really having noticed it. Uh, suddenly there is a whole cadre of what today you would call a cons conservative activists uh, who have been uh, mobilized by the Goldwater campaign. and. Uh, the uh, odds are they are going to drive uh, their nominee to elect uh, to nomination in San Francisco. This took uh, Eisenhower and the so-called uh, Eastern uh, Wing of the Republican Party by surprise. I don't think they woke up to this until uh, I would say around the New Hampshire primary, and then they realized that um, uh, Goldwater had outorganized everybody, and that's what he did. Goldwater outorganized. Uh, his potential rivals in 1964. Goldwater was never, according to any poll I've ever seen, not for an hour, 
uh, the choice of rank-and-file Republicans for the 1964 nomination. He was always distinctly third or fourth. The uh, leading fellow through most of the spring was Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, then Nixon, for a while, was the uh, choice of rank-and-file. Uh, so it was Nixon Lodge. The 1960 ticket uh, were actually favored by most Republicans. But Goldwater organized a determined group within the Republican Party and changed the face of the Republican Party, giving him his due. He definitely changed the uh, direction of the Republican Party from 64 on. Eisenhower resisted this, not because he wasn't conservative. And Dwight Eisenhower was a very conservative man. I think that comes through even more conservative in many ways than Ronald Reagan. But, number one, he believed in um, moderation, which is a style of government. It doesn't refer to a program, it's a style. It's sort of uh, uh, recognizing that politics is about compromise, uh, making friends across the aisle, uh, being for your side, but uh, being friendly towards all. Uh, it's, it refers to a style. He's a moderate. And he also had a specific point of disagreement with uh, Barry Goldwater, and that was over the appropriateness of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Goldwater had well-founded, or I would say well-considered, not founded, well-considered constitutional objections to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. He voted against the act. And Eisenhower, who had uh, laid the foundations for the civil rights of the 1960s as in his second term as president, was very clear that civil rights probably required bipartisanship, uh, and he wanted the Republican Party on record as being for it. This is the party of Lincoln. So uh, they, they differed uh, over that. And so Eisenhower sponsored alternatives, and it didn't work. Did, did Dwight Eisenhower support a particular Republican candidate in the primaries? Well, I think without question, he supported Scranton. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, he did not support Scranton the way Scranton needed to be supported, which would have been uh, open uh, support uh, backed by even barnstorming uh, and doing uh, whatever he could. Eisenhower did not... I think that uh, uh, Granddad probably felt that uh, it would not work. When, when the Scranton bandwagon started, this was in response to several uh, Goldwater votes, uh, procedural votes on civil rights where Goldwater made it clear he was going to oppose the 64 Civil Rights Act. When that became clear, uh, Bill Scranton emerged as a formal candidate. By then, I'm pretty sure that uh, a headcount of delegates uh, would have shown that Goldwater was the nominee of the party. Eisenhower wanted to support uh, Scranton, but to have supported him and acknowledged that Goldwater was the nominee of the party, he was, uh, it would have been a symbolic gesture. Uh, and it would have uh, uh, done all kinds of other factors in, in, in the into the equation here. Uh, Eisenhower, uh, Goldwater's not Eisenhower's choice, but uh, Eisenhower had not been uh, the choice of conservatives in 1952 either. Did he campaign, did Eisenhower campaign for Goldwater in 64? Uh, sort of. Uh, yeah, he, uh, he made uh, several speeches. He made uh, uh, four Senate candidates, and of course Goldwater's on the ballot. Uh, he uh, hosted several unity meetings and uh, made statements on Goldwater's behalf. He hosted a television conversation with Barry Goldwater that was filmed in, I think, October of 64 to rebut this idea that Goldwater was trigger-happy. 
uh, and did uh, several things like that, but he was not... Uh, he was not enlisted in the campaign. A former president wouldn't necessarily be enlisted in a campaign, uh, but uh, he was uh, definitely not enlisted in 64. What did you call Dwight Eisenhower? I called him uh, Granddad, and that's the way he signs his letters to me. How often uh, did he write to you? In the book. He wrote um, fairly regularly, I would say every two or three weeks. Uh, we could uh, actually check that. And I've got, I have most of, or I have uh, a number of the letters. I think I've uh, probably, probably lost several. Uh, but I kept them. And uh, we unearthed them some years ago. And I was awfully grateful to have those letters. Uh, without going to the Eisner Library and seeing uh, his end of the correspondence, uh, uh, we developed this section of the book. Uh, I was unusual in our small little family. We lived as a, a small family unit. Ike and Mamie, my mother and father, and the four of us uh, lived at the farm. And what made me different is that I went away to school. And because I went away to school, I had a correspondence with my grandparents, I had a correspondence with my father and mother and uh, things like that. And so I had this course, correspondence. He signed his letters granddad. And so I think that's what uh, I called him most of the time. Was the family kind of disappointed that you didn't go to West Point? Yes. As it turns out, uh, I was being primed for West Point. I didn't recognize that. I thought I was being pushed away from West Point. My father made it a point to give me a choice, is the way he put it. He, uh, and another way he put it is that he felt he had not exactly had a choice. I don't know about that. Uh, I've seen letters between my father and his father in the 1940-41 period, and Dad sounds pretty dedicated to the idea of West Point. But in any case, my father made a, uh, took a position that I'm very grateful for. It's uh, really made all the difference in my life, and that is that his son would have a choice. And so I got sent to Phillips Exeter Academy. At what age? Fourteen. That's about as civilian an institution as exists. It did not occur to me to apply to West Point. It did not occur to me. We did have one fellow uh, who went to West Point from, uh, from Exeter, but I didn't know him. He, was, he lived on the other side of campus. And uh, uh, it just simply didn't occur to me to uh, go. And then I arrive at Amherst, and one of the first letters from Granddad that I got at Amherst addressed to me at Pratt Hall, uh, he acknowledged that he had hoped <laughs> that I would go to West Point. I was conscious at a certain age that I was being given the opportunity. Uh, I was, I had flat feet. I had pretty flat feet and I was put on a, sort of a regimen where you exercise the uh, two big toes uh, and so forth in such a way as to build up arches. You tell that in the book about uh, yeah, marbles. Yeah, tell us. And you know, uh, when you're uh, in summertime, you're, you're in a swimming pool and you leave footprints when you're running around. You've been in the water and you get out and you leave footprints. One of the one of the things I always noticed from an early age were, uh, I would say, ideal footprints, ones with uh, high arches and I have sort of a curve. And so I would work on that uh, so that my footprints would have the same curve. And I think I developed it. I haven't really had trouble uh, with my feet, and I was uh, no problem for the United States Navy when that time came. Oh, you were in the Navy? I was in the Navy, yes. For, for how long? Uh, almost three years. I was. Uh, uh, I went through Naval OCS uh, at Newport and graduated in March of 71 and spent uh, 
from there on, I was officially in the Navy when I, when I arrived at uh, Newport, uh, commissioned an officer on a three-year stint. And I served two of those years, and then the USS Albany came here to Philadelphia uh, for a year in the yard, and they more or less offered uh, the reserve naval officers an opportunity to apply for early outs if they wanted one. And uh, I felt uh, sure. So I applied for an early out and I was granted one. What was Dwight Eisenhower like around the dinner table? You know, it's funny. I, uh, I don't remember saying a lot at dinner tables, so I remember listening a lot. Uh, as going home to glory unfolds, uh, this remote figure becomes much closer. I became, uh, in the summer of 64, my parents had moved to Phoenixville, Pennsylvania which is uh, close to here, away from Gettysburg. I spent that summer living with my grandparents. Uh, we had lunch regularly, uh, the three of us and dinner, or the two of us and uh, dinner on trays on the sun porch or occasionally in the uh, di main dining room at the Gettysburg farm. And I probably uh, was more involved then probably reporting on my day. Uh, how was your day? How are things uh, you know, what are you planning to do, this, that, uh, and so on. What I remember best about uh, dinner and social hours around my grandparents was watching the interaction between them and, and the usual guests uh, who were around. There were a lot of guests. Uh, they were very social. And I was fascinated by it. I uh, developed, I think, at an early age, and this is something that has influenced me professionally, uh, a sense of what uh, leaders are, uh, of what decision makers are, uh, what kind of personalities they are, how they, uh, how they relax, uh, how they go to work, uh, this and that. This is sort of second nature to me, and it's uh, this is something I've carried over into the study of uh, recent American history and the teaching I do at University of Pennsylvania, uh, the study of speeches and how people communicate and so on. It was a, it was a seminar. Uh, on this for years, and I loved it. It was a very dignified, uh, our social hours were very, very dignified and high level. If you lived in Gettysburg at the time, might you have seen the Eisenhowers going into the grocery store or oh, getting sure. a haircut or something like that? They well, I think so, particularly my grandmother. My grandmother was a real presence in Gettysburg. She uh, enjoyed, uh, but my grandfather, um, uh, liked to get out. He had a he had a office right in the downtown uh, area uh, on the campus of Gettysburg College. In fact, the off there's a statue of him outside the the building where the Eisenhower offices were. Uh, he was not Harry Truman. He did not walk to work, uh, so he was not somebody that was saying good morning to the neighbors uh, as he was uh, going to the office. But the but the Eisenhower team was there, and they made good friends. Uh, very good friends in the Gettysburg area. The Sharfs, uh, who ran the Gettysburg Hotel, the McCaskills, uh, Reverend McCaskill I covered, the Johnsons, who were doctors, uh, and other people. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, it was a warm, lovely uh, era in my mind. Uh, secure, purposeful, uh, pleasant. When he was not engaged in public policy, how did he spend his time? He's one of the best relaxers, or one of the best, I would say, uh, his motto was, if you haven't had fun in a day, uh, you've wasted a day. And I don't think anybody 
was better at having fun while carrying extraordinary weight of decision responsibility than Dwight Eisenhower. He was he, he did everything all out, uh, and that is running a farm. Uh, it was uh, playing golf. Uh, it was skeet shooting and hunting. Uh, it was playing bridge. You say in the book, he's he a pretty ferocious bridge player. Well, he's a ferocious bridge player. He was uh, the the one thing that I would say, and I loved recreating it uh, in the book. The the, the the one activity where I felt that uh, uh, he, he was in a completely different state of mind became, in fact, I can still see a sort of beatific smile uh, on his face as he's sitting there uh, dabbing paint. Uh, he loved to paint, and now painting, like everything else, was a social, social activity. His paint uh, easel is set up uh, at a strategic spot on the sun porch so that, uh, as, you know, he has guests over here and Mamie's over here and so forth, and so he can sit in the middle and sort of talk. When he had a studio in the White House, uh, as a boy, I was uh, very often uh, sort of called in, uh, sit uh, for a chat, and he was often accompanied as he was painting. But uh, uh, he seemed to wa wander into a different state uh, when he was painting. I think that that was the one contemplative uh, thing that he did. Otherwise, it was uh, he loved the action and he loved uh, having fun, cooking. Uh, he was a great cook, and uh, cooking great meals was a huge production. Uh, there were certain dishes that he would do would uh, take two, three days uh, to complete certain kinds of soups and other things that he would make. So he enjoyed, he had a lot of zest uh, for uh, doing things and he was, as you say, a ferocious bridge player. He's a terrific competitor on a golf course and, and so on and so on. The one thing that was a not a competitive activity, again, was the painting. And uh, probably the best description I got of it was from General Walter Akash, who had been uh, the assistant position uh, during the 1950s and uh, to peruse the guest book at Gettysburg. He was a pretty frequent visitor at Gettysburg. And uh, I thought that Walter's description of Dwight Eisenhower painting uh, was probably better than uh, the one that I could have come up with on my own. Uh, but it was similar and it resonated. I had many experiences like that uh, with my grandfather. Do you have any of his paintings? We have, uh, I would say, four or five. Uh, we have, uh, they are all over the place. A lot of people have Eisenhower paintings. A lot of them are gone. Uh, he threw away a lot of paintings. Sergeant Moni saved some of the ones that he threw away. So probably the Moni's have quite a few. Um, we only have a few minutes left. What I gather from your book is you were in the, in the room at Walter Reed Hospital when Dwight Eisenhower died? Yes, I was. Describe that. Well, it's a, uh, it was my first experience with something like this. How long had he been in the hospital? Well, he'd been in the hospital. He was uh, admitted at Walter Reed, I think, in May of 68. Uh, that would have been end of May because he had to recuperate. He had a massive heart attack in California in late April. And he spent several weeks recuperating at March, Air, March Field Air Force Base before he was able to be moved. He was moved to Walter Reed and then moves into the so-called Ward 8 suite, which is uh, uh, at the uh, Walter Reed Army Hospital. And this section, this part of his life, which is the last 10 months, is probably why I did this book. And I think it's why doing this book occurred to me. Because um, 
I'm on the verge of becoming 21. I'm just about to be married. I'm involved in a campaign, and in fact, they, they're actually scheduling us in the places on this campaign where Julie and I uh, are responsible for events. We are being thrust out there. I am moving through college. I'm approaching decisions about what to do after college. I'm sort of grown up, and he's at the very end of his life, and it was must have been obvious to him, as it was obvious to us all, that uh, he was really uh, at the end. Uh, his world had become Ward 8. And I visited him as often as I could, and I just absorbed everything. I, I, I just, uh, the way I sort of ana uh, analogize it is that uh, it's like layers uh, being uh, uh, stripped away to see sort of an uh, inner, inner core, the bravery and the serenity of that man in those circumstances overwhelmed me. And I knew that uh, I wanted to do a story about him. And over time, that story takes on features. He's a former president. Uh, he's a general. He's consulting presidents. Uh, he's operating under the 22nd Amendment. He's running a farm. All these things are part of the story. But the reason I did the story is because I'll just never get over my exposure uh, to the man. And yes, I was in the room. Uh, my father and I were there, and uh, I still have a very vivid uh, mental picture of it. Uh, it was a separation from a person that uh, uh, meant uh, so much to me. Well, I, I wish we could spend more time talking about it, but if people want to know the full story, they will have to read the book. This is the cover of it, Going Home to Glory, and it is by David Eisenhower and Julie Nixon Eisenhower. And before we finish, I have to say that Camp David. Yes. You're David. <laughs> yeah, I'm David, yeah. Uh, that's right. Uh, his father, uh, Dwight Eisenhower's father, was also David. So uh, we share credit in the official histories, but uh, when the Eisenhowers moved into the White House in 1953, there were three or four installations that belonged to the executive office of the president provided by the United States Navy. Uh, one was Camp Shangri-La. That got named for me because I was senior. Uh, the second was the presidential yacht that got named for Barbara Ann, uh, my oldest sister. Then there was another little yacht, and that got named Susan Lane, and that's uh, the uh, person that you interviewed on this show. And then finally, a little tugboat came along, and Mary was born, and we had a little Mary E. So uh, this was an order of seniority in our household, and I got to camp, and by pure historical accident, the camp became an historic site. And it seems to be every president has the right to rename it. Uh, president Obama can call it uh, Camp Michelle uh, if he wishes, and I, I would be uh, happy with that. And I think I've had a very good run. But uh, somehow it seems to be historical, and people don't think uh, can't, uh, they act as though it can't be renamed. It can be. Well, we have been speaking with David Eisenhower. He is the co-author with his wife, Julie Nixon Eisenhower, of this book, Going Home to Glory, and it is the years with, David, with uh, Dwight Eisenhower, 1961 to 1969. Thank you very much. Brian, thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.